When you learn a technique, you're learning one thing. When you're learning a principle that embodies a technique, you might be learning a thousand things. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Today is a rewind back to one of my favorite board meetings of all time. It first aired in April of 2020. And we chose this episode to look back at because we're spending the next couple of months immersed in how we learn to move better, how we gain new skills, and exploring if there's a better way to consider movement than the technique-based way we've always done it. And this board meeting was the inflection point for my turn down the path of ecological dynamics, the constraints-led approach to coaching, and most importantly, thinking about climbing and climbing movement in terms of global themes. And if after you hear this episode, you want to go deeper or keep up with what we're learning and discussing, then please, the best way to do that is to sign up to our monthly newsletter, The Current. It's not a sales email. It's a place for me to collect and connect all of the dots and try to tease out the principles that we need to be paying attention to. The next one comes out a few days after this episode drops. So sign up now. The link is right there in your show notes. Nate and I both prepared for this episode by listening to episode 412 of the Tim Ferriss podcast with guest Josh Waitzkin, who's also the author of one of our favorite books, The Art of Learning. And in the episode, he's rethinking how, as adults, we learn new physical activities, and Nate and I try to relate his ideas to climbing. All right, let's get into it. The thing that I came up with in trying to come up with a phrase or a sentence or some way to describe what this episode was all about was it's sort of about holes in mental models. And I think that's a phrase Josh uses somewhere in this episode. Yeah, it's uh, it feels like so he's pursuing and he has a new passion now and he's got a really got a beginner's mind with this. And so he talks about how he's approaching this versus what he's done in the past. And, you know, because he, with this, with uh, foiling, he's taking such a strange approach and a lot of people are questioning it. And so he's kind of uh, talking about why that is and why he feels like a lot of people miss good opportunities um, with how they approach learning and just improvement in general. Yeah. And we all sort of have a model of learning built that we tend to follow. You know, it may look slightly different, whether it's a, a physical thing or another method of learning, but ultimately we still tend to follow that same sort of model. And he's kind of mm-hmm. looking at, the holes in those models and the preconceptions we have or the preconceived notions we have about things and how can we sort of dig a little deeper. 
Yeah. You know, and he talked on a lot of interesting points when it comes to mental models as well. Um, one that I thought was really fascinating was he was talking about in chess how newer players who are coming up nowadays, they don't have to worry about mental models quite as much as far as, uh, or um, not mental models, uh, bias, like, yeah, mental models, like, or certain uh, biases that you can sometimes fall for, like a uh, mm-hmm. sunk cost fallacy was the one he gives the example of, which is, you know, you're really invested in something. And so you hold on to, like in chess, you hold on to a position. You're like, oh, I was playing this way. And maybe it's now the wrong direction, but you've put so much energy into it that you stay with it. That's a sunk cost fallacy. But he was saying now that because of the power of computers and they're so good, people who are learning chess now have instantaneous feedback, which is something he talks about a lot, like having uh, good feedback. And because their feedback is so good from these computers and instantaneous, they don't have to worry about falling for these traps so much because they can just learn so well what is right and what is wrong and they don't have to go with their gut as much yeah totally and i when he talked about that i started thinking about how that you know what the mirror of that looks like in the climbing world and all same yeah and it's it's very similar to the fact that we now have these bouldering gyms everywhere or we did until a few weeks ago Um, and and hopefully that comes back but we have these this availability of bouldering, whether it's at the bouldering gym, on your home wall, whatever, that we can test out and understand new movements, new techniques, new ideas constantly. Whereas before those gyms existed, it was you encounter a new move on your project and that's the first time you see it. It may be the only time you see it, Mm -hmm. you know? So you have to learn to understand it right there in the moment. People in bouldering gyms get to learn thousands and thousands of moves every month. It just yeah, no, makes makes for faster sins of hard climbs. Totally. And, you know, that's interesting that that's the direction you took with it. Um, and I like that a lot. When I heard him talk about immediate feedback and the idea that a computer can give it to you, you know, in chess perfectly. But... Uh, w- two things jumped out to me. One was that things like Instagram or like, because we can watch pros, high level climbers do moves so much. We can see, okay, this is what great movement looks like. So much more, it's so much more readily available now versus even five years ago. Like I can go, I can watch V15 climbers, which I do. Like I joke that I follow half of Tokyo at this point. Anytime, like, I see someone who climbs V15, I'm like, yeah, you're getting a follow if they post. Um, but yeah, I can just watch V15, V16 climbers for hours every day if I wanted to, doing new, unique moves and positions. And that's a really cool way to learn. Um, so that was, like, one of the ways that I, um, I kind of thought about this idea of instant feedback. But the other one was that in climbing we don't have perfect feedback when we fail. You know, and this is something that us as coaches, we run into all the time. You know, someone tries a crimp boulder or whatever, they fall. A lot of times I'll ask, you know, why do you why did you fall? And I'll be like, oh, that hold was too bad. You know, that's their only feedback that they have is that they fell. 
From then, right. they have to use their entire toolkit to assess why did I fall, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's that takes a life of learning to figure out why you fell and then what to do from there. Yeah, and there is no right answer that applies to every situation. You know, he and Tim talk a little bit about uh, more feedback isn't always better. Mm-hmm. And and that's something I've rolled around in my head for the last few years, actually, because, you know, we were on the front end of this remote coaching movement uh, within climbing anyway. And climbing is a very, very movement-based sport. And the feedback can be a lot more intricate than it might for, say, remote strength training, which is is a little easier to coach remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, still not easy by any means, but but a little less complicated than climbing. And the idea that more feedback isn't better started me down this path of wondering, is remote coaching maybe even more effective because I can't be there right in front of you giving you feedback in the moment and you're forced to build your own awareness in order to tell me how your session was later. Yeah. So Um, I think that's a really good point. Um, You know, and that's something that I've noticed as well. Like I think most, for a lot of people, the longer they do it, like I have clients that I've been working with for, you know, three plus years at this point. And it's really cool to see, you know, it all started with, they would send me videos. I would ask them questions. You know, a lot of times they'd be like, I don't know the answer to that. It's like, well, you know what? Let's like, just keep kicking the can down the road. Let's keep working on it. And, you know, we're not in a rush to have all the right answers right now. Um, Right. And so I'd let them think on it. And now it's really cool because they'll send me a video and they'll be asking me questions like, or they'll come up with these ideas and they'll be like, oh, I think like this might be happening. And it's so cool to see how how their intuition has changed over time and just how much more introspective they've become. And I mean, these are a lot of these people, you know, I think over, I looked at our stats the other day, over half of our clients have been climbing at least eight years. So, you know, these are experienced climbers and it's cool to see like that much of a change in just, you know, two or three years. Yeah, totally. And one of my favorite things actually, you know, you just brought up a cool coaching moment that that was actually hard for me to apply at first because I I wasn't sure if I felt good about it or not. It was when someone comes to me and says, you know, they they've gone down this this thought process rabbit hole and they're like, well, this is what I think I see. And, you know, what about this? And I think I need to do this. Even if I can look at it and 100% know that that's not the right answer, very often I'll say, yeah, try that. See how that goes. Yeah. Report back to me on how that works out because that's offering them this learning opportunity that I could have very easily taken away by saying, no, that's not going to work. Let's do this instead. Yeah. You know, so that's another place where I think remote coaching can really work out. Yeah. You know, I hadn't really put a ton of thought into it in that specific framework, but I think you're absolutely right. 
yeah, how do you think as climbers we can build that level of awareness? What is it that we do that allows us to have a higher level of awareness or gain it over time? You know, I think climbing with other people helps a lot. Um, and honestly, like trying to watch other people and determine why are they falling and from there say like, okay, am I applying this to myself? Um, cause it's, you know, I can, if we watch someone else, it's really easy to say like, oh, they're just, you know, they're not using their legs or they're not twisting or they're trying to twist and all they need to do is just like stay square and try hard. But it's sometimes hard to use those same frameworks on ourselves. <clears throat> so I think that's one good way to start. Um, yeah, I, I agree totally. And something I was thinking about the other day is, you know, I was trying to come up with the sort of thematic ideas within climbing, and we'll talk more about that later. But mm -hmm. one of the things I that occurred to me was the people who understand position the best are some of the people who observe a lot. Uh, the best spotters, the best photographers can anticipate positions, movement, momentum. And it's because they spend a lot of time just observing and understanding this happens, so this happens in response to that. And, and it, you can tell when it's a great photographer or a great spotter they're there when that moment happens rather mm -hmm. than rather than reacting to it after the fact you know so i think that observation whether it's in video whether it's working directly with other people trying to anticipate and then saying i was right i was wrong why is a really good idea i couldn't agree more on that like this idea of observation and first slight tangent but not entirely if you're in the climbing gym, like put your phone down, you know, there'd be a session of like six or seven people climbing together, all on the same boulder, all about the same level. One would go and try it. The other five would have their heads down, like looking at Instagram or something. Yeah. And man, like, what are you doing? Like if you only climb, let's say, I don't know, 10 out, like if you climb two hour sessions, five days a week, that's 10 hours. Like, if you're spending nine of those hours looking at Instagram, like, you know, what are you doing? Are you really like, are you really trying to get better? Um, yep. So yeah, the best, the best flash climbers I ever saw, like prior to beta videos being readily available, were the people who sat back and watched a session unfold and watched the small beta changes that people were making and understood what worked, what didn't, maybe even for different body types. Oh, yeah. You know, this, this person can stand on that foot, but this person can't. Why? And what's going to work for me? And then they wait until everything gets sorted for them, but they're living that experience, and then they can step onto the boulder and just do it like they've tried it 50 times. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I'm the type of person who likes to jump in and be hands-on in the experience, in the figuring out. So I'm not good at that sitting back and watching, but it really amazes me to watch people who do it and to, to recognize, oh, this person's sitting back. I want to see what they come up with after they've synthesized all this information they're taking in. Yeah. 
And man, those are the people that when you fall, it doesn't even matter if you haven't talked to them once that day. Like you could go up to them and say, hey, where, what was my right foot on when I fell? Right. They will know. They'll know yeah. what right foot everyone used <clears throat> for that move. Because like, I mean, that's what those people do. Like there is, I mean, there is a skill to observing. It's, you know, it's like anything. It's like remembering people's names. Like, I don't believe that there are people who are bad at remembering names or good at remembering names. There are people who prioritize them and people who don't. Like, right. it's the same thing with remember, like looking and observing and really studying people when they climb. Like, you know, you make that conscious decision of, I'm going to watch what they're doing. Like, I'm going to try and look at as many details as I can, both like zoomed in and zoomed out. Like, you know, what is their body overall doing? And even down to like, okay, what is their pinky doing? Like, what is their thumb doing? I know what my pinky's doing. Just tucked into the palm every time. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, to continue on this, like back from the tangent, uh, on this idea of observers, uh, route setters. Man, Mm, if you like- totally. They learn movement and understand it so quickly because they have to. I mean, they're the ones who- they say, oh, if I turn this foot 15 degrees, how does that change this boulder? You know, I mean, that's huge. Uh, I remember listening to an interview with Tyson. Uh, it's that Vertical World? Yep, Tyson Shaney. Yep. Uh, and he was talking about Sean Bailey and how Sean really struggled with route reading and his competition climbing. And so Tyson told him he should start route setting once a week. And that ended up having a very dramatic effect on his ability to route read and move during sure. competitions. And yeah, it, and it makes complete sense. But, and it made him an active observer of movement, of climbing, of setting by doing that. Yeah, and if you're one of those people who are building a home wall right now, ideally one of the ones that's not going to fall down in three weeks. Yes. Um, that's a really, really great opportunity to be that active observer. Um, I try to push people to make up their own problems all the time in the gym. I think it's, you know, it really helps you understand the relationship between this is a handhold I just used, later it's going to become a foothold. How does that fit into space? How do those different, you know, directions put me into different positions? You know, all that stuff is so integral to learning to move really well and learning to anticipate how a hold orientation or, uh, you know, the position of holds is going to force the position of your body and of your movement. Yeah. Good opportunity for the home wall users. And, and I think that's one of the best things about home walls, which is really similar. Yves Gravel and I talked about this a little bit that – that's the way gyms used to be. And now there are, you know, far, far less density in the gym. So it's harder to make up your own problems. So home wall users have a big advantage there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the themes in Tim and Josh's conversation that I really latched onto started right off the bat. And you and I have talked about this a little bit. It's a, something I've been rolling around in my brain for a while and this is this idea of, you know, being idealistic or fanciful um, or having to be inspired. Oh, and, yeah. And I think this is a big one for climbers. And when Josh first talks about it, he's talking about his 
former like chess sparring partner named Maurice. And he says that Maurice gives up when the poetic perfection has been marred. And yes. I thought I thought that was a really great way to put it because I, I see this in climbers in a bunch of different ways. Number one, a move has to be perfect or mm-hmm. or you're gonna drop off. You know, if something goes wrong when you're trying your boulder, you just give up. You you feel like everything has to go exactly your way. And <clears throat> And I also see it in this other side of climbers who are like, that doesn't inspire me. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to try that because it's not beautiful. And, and I think there's, you know, there's some missed opportunities there for climbers in that just because it doesn't look good, just because it doesn't inspire you doesn't mean it doesn't have something to teach you. And can we learn to reframe that battle, that foot cutting, ugly, had to change my beta on the fly battle? Can we reframe that to be poetic perfection? Like is is that battle worthy of that? It's a different poetic for sure, but is it still worthy? Yeah, no, I... I think there's absolutely something to that. And I would even go so far as to say, it's not even, I don't think it only applies to the people who, you know, they get to a move and they're like, oh, this is hard and they let go or things get sloppy and they let go. It, on a much higher level, there are a lot of people who, when things do start going poorly, mentally they let go. For sure. Like, yeah, maybe you're still on the wall. Maybe you're still going to try and keep going, but like, you're not really trying, you kind of check out. And when it comes, when you get to that crux move, you're not going to try as hard because you're like, oh, I've fallen on this move when I was at 80%, you know, freshness. And now I'm only at like 60, like I'll never do it. So they have tried it. And that's just as good as letting go. Yeah, I I agree completely with that. And, you know, there was a, a question brought up on our board that about effort that mentions that you know, you, you psych yourself up. You're like, this is the go. You sit down, you pull on, and then all of a sudden these doubts start creeping in about maybe this isn't the go, you know? And I think that's a really common, a common thing to happen. Some little thing goes wrong, you know? Your foot slips a little and you think, fuck, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. This isn't the go, you know? And then that drops your effort level by 3% even, can be enough on your hardest boulders, hardest roots to, to not do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think we can practice that, right? Like in the gym, you know, we do these drills that to a lot of people seem really trivial, like say a one-touch drill where you don't get to shift your hands, you don't get to shift your feet, even when they don't feel right, you keep going. And, and the point isn't so that you never have to shift your hands. Sometimes that's part of the sequence. Sometimes you just get a hold wrong and you've got the energy, shift your hand, you know, make it right. Yeah. But learning to be okay with that and understand that I didn't get it perfect, but that doesn't really mean anything. I can continue and I can still send. That's a huge thing for you to be able to take into your projects 
into, I mean, it doesn't even stick to just climbing. That's anything in life. You can still get it done, even if it's not perfect. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was one part I thought was really interesting, and I'd love to hear your take on it, where Josh talks about this opening, this chess opening that he and Maurice would find themselves in occasionally, and Maurice really wanted to focus on it. He's like, we should, we should really dig into this. And Josh thought it was impractical. He thought it wasn't useful. We're rarely going to find ourselves in this situation. Why would we spend time here? Yeah, like you would, I think he said it, you'd have to make a mistake, like three mistakes in a row right. from, the, from the start of the game to end up here. Right, and he thought, it's not practical. It's not, you're, you're gonna find yourself here once, you know? Yes. And now as, as an adult, and after they did spend time exploring it, he realizes that going down those little rabbit holes can lead unexpected places and teach you unexpected things that you might may not have seen from the outset. Can you think of any times when you've gone down a rabbit hole and it's taught you something unexpected? And I'll just give an example that I thought of while you're thinking of yours, if there are any. And just recently, I was on a trip to Moe's Valley and and I've known that I'm not a full crimp climber. Like that's not a secret. I've known that for a long ass time. Yeah. But I've never but I've never needed to be. I've I've been able to get by with half crimping for a long, long time and at a pretty high level. So I never felt like I needed to full crimp. And I came across this boulder with a move that I just couldn't do, even though other people were smashing the move. And and it was because I couldn't half crimp the hold. And when I, I spent several sessions trying to full crimp it. And when I did hold the full crimp, I realized my body position feels really strange. And I was going off of my intuition. If I were half crimping it, here's how I would move. And then I asked my friend Josh to try the move again. And, you know, and I, I just asked him, how would you do this move? Because he had flashed the boulder. Mm-hmm how would you do this move? And he said, I would push here, toe hook here. And, and it's not what I was doing. And it's not because I'm not good at bicycling. It's because I'm used to holding things in a half crimp, which puts my hand and my arm in a different position and you know, allows me to pull in a different way. Yeah. So when I learned to full crimp and I tried it his way, all of a sudden the move clicked. And that was a whole new body position, a whole new foot position. I never would have intuited if I hadn't gone down that full crimp rabbit hole for a very brief, like I just stuck my head in the rabbit hole. Now I'm way down that rabbit hole and I'm learning all sorts of new positions and new ways to apply tension that that just weren't open to me before. Yeah. It, yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, and especially because initially it seems like, I mean, yeah, we've talked about this a lot. You were always like, well, it's just one grip type. Like I'm strong enough, open hand and half crimp. Why do I need this other grip type? And I mean, you've climbed hard crimp boulders, half crimping. Right. Uh, and so as far as just, 
you know, general logic goes, like, yeah, you were doing fine without it. Like, it didn't seem like it would be that big of an advantage to add one extra grip. Like, that would take a long time potentially to, you know, get up to where the other ones were. But there were all these other things that came along with it. Yep, exactly. Things I never would have known, never would have imagined. I would have just said, oh, my positioning is fine. I know how to bicycle. You know, could it get better? Yes. But I never understood that putting my arm in a different position, being able to pull in a different plane meant that I was going to have to change the way my lower body interacted as well. Yeah. So pretty yeah, cool. New he, new doors opening up. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, you know, I for me, like there are kind of two... Uh, one's a little bit more vague. The more vague one is I've been climbing a lot more on World Cup style boulders and really just comp style gem problems. Mm -hmm. And this is something I avoided forever, kind of falling into the same trap that Josh talks about where he was like, oh, when will this ever be useful? But I was like, oh, I want to do this because, you know, it's it feels really hard for me. And man, like it has carried over so much like i it's funny i had uh spent a pretty long stint of time maybe like a month climbing predominantly on the moon board and that's what like basically all i was doing and then i was like okay i'm gonna go climb a bunch of like comp style problems for a while did that for like a month of mostly i mean everything from like the slab you know volume crawling to just like pretty much anything i could and then I ended up going back and I felt significantly stronger on the moon board coming back. And it was, you know, it was one of those things I was like, oh, I feel more powerful. I'm moving more confidently. Like I just feel more coordinated. Like my coordination had improved so much because, you know, with all these like, all these boulders that may seem weird or extreme, like it's like, oh, when will I ever do that move again? It's like, that's not the point. The point is understanding how this move works. Why does my body need to move through space in that way? Why does that work for this? Because when you understand that, then you understand more about movement. Like it's it's not about double dynoing to the side, like sideways. It's about why does my body need to move through space in this way for this move? Um, right, and and can I anticipate where it's going to land and how I need to to tension my body when it does and what happens if I miss? Can I ant anticipate those things? Yeah. You know, so less just can I stick this move more, what are all the little parts of this that I can learn and become better at? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and with this, uh, I wrote down a quote that Josh said um, when it comes to conceptual learning, this idea of like trying to draw, like looking at things more as principles. And he said, when you learn a technique, you're learning one thing. When you're learning a principle that embodies a technique, you might be learning a thousand things. Yeah, totally. And you know, that's one of the big takeaways I got from this conversation was this idea of thematic or conceptual learning. And he calls it non-local learning. I like that as well. Same. Yeah. You know, not, I'm not learning how to heel hook. I'm, I'm learning what it 
what heel hooking requires. You know, how do I tension this part of my body? You know, where in space do I need to put my my flagging leg to to balance all this out? And all those things can carry over to other moves as well. Yeah. No, and it, I think that's that's such a great way to look at it. Um, so when it comes to themes or principles in climbing, do you have like what are some that jump out to you? I actually I have a list that I've you know, I started making the day I was listening to it, um, and I was out shoveling snow, so it was just a list in my head. Um, and that list has changed a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but the things I have currently and and I'm totally open to combining things, adding things, whatever, but I have tension, position, effort, precision, and and the last one I've I've changed the name of several times because I think it embodies a lot of different emotions, but essentially it is an emotional component, whether that's commitment, anxiety, confidence, whatever. Mm-hmm. There, there's an emotion that comes along with a lot of the aspects of climbing, whether it's a specific type of movement that causes you to have an emotion, standing on a bad foothold, things like that. Oh, yeah, I know that emotion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, are, that I think that's a big theme in, in climbing that we can find ways to train that will spread across the rest of your climbing. Mm-hmm. What about you? Were there, were there other things that you thought about as big themes? Yeah. Um, I would say in this one, I don't know the perfect word for it. Not quite pacing um, or speed, but both how you carry yourself across an entire boulder and how fast or slow you do in an individual move. Um, mm-hmm. And that one can kind of land on the whole like tension relaxation spectrum. Right. Um, Cause you know, if you doesn't quite fit there, but I, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is uh, earlier we were talking about the idea of when you fall, what is your toolkit for assessing why you fell? And I think these ideas of these principles, these frameworks are the toolkit and everything is kind of, in my mind, like they all work on a dial, you know, you can crank it from a zero to a 10, like, okay, I fell on that move. Where was my tension? How fast was I moving on that move? How much effort was I giving? All of these different things. And, you know, when you first start climbing, you may only have one dial and it's more of a switch anyways. It's kind of an on off. And, uh, you know, as you get better, your entire dashboard of controls really just keeps increasing of, oh, now I have position and maybe I have this certain range of position. And as you learn more, suddenly there's a wider and wider range and you go from not only having static positions to dynamic positions, as in like, I will start a move here and I need to end a move there. Um, I hear so many people say ridiculous things like, oh yeah, I know how to do that. Rather than something to the effect of I've spent time learning how to do that and and I feel like I'm pretty good at it but there's a lot more to learn. Yeah. You know, so when you, like like you're making this dashboard analogy, you might have 
position now on your dashboard. It might be a zero to three dial, mm-hmm. but but eventually you can get that from zero to you know who knows twenty five dial or whatever. Yeah, and it you becomes know. very apparent when you climb with climbers who have that big dial and can and can change it effortlessly when you compare it to yourself. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I was, I think I was telling you that about this, but I was climbing with Will Anglin and a buddy, Chad Volk, in the Tension Training Center this last winter. And Chad, I set a boulder for Chad to try, and he was trying this one move. And he was like, Nate, how should I try this? And we were working on different things. And I was like, you need to create more tension so that you, when you get to this, it was a big cross move. And I was like, you need to create more tension. So when you get there, you're frozen. And then you can kind of slowly barn door yourself to the other side. And he tried it for a bit, but couldn't create the tension. And then Will came over and he was like, hey, you're getting stuck. And I had never heard this. I've, you know, I've been climbing 16 years now, something like that. And what he was explaining is he was like, you don't know how to create the tension to stay on one side of this. You only have enough tension to where you're getting stuck in the middle, the worst place to be in a big crossover. He was like, use more speed, send yourself to the other side, because that's where the better position is when you're laying back the side pull you're going to. He's like, and then you'll be well off. And Chad tried it, and after a few goes, he could stick it that way. And since then, like, I've been playing with this idea of don't get stuck. And, you know, this is... To me, that that was such a cool experience of, I was like, oh, you know, I've probably done 10,000 moves that look exactly like that one. I have never want, like, and I'm sure I've used that method, but I've never had the words for it. Like, I've never had that number on the dial to say, oh, I need to not get stuck here. Yeah, totally. And like, and, and that's a, you know, that's an interesting example because for me, crossing has always been a strength. I'm good at making crosses, not getting stuck in the middle, rolling through. Yeah. Um, but there are boxes where I get stuck. There are positions, moves where I get stuck. And actually, um, you know, just to just because you brought Will into it, I'm going to bring Roland into it. Oh, nice. He was he was here at the machine shop a few weeks ago. You know, right before all this stuff happened, all this lockdown stuff happened and and number one it was like okay I thought my ability to use momentum dial had increased dramatically but then I got to see how much more on that dial there is oh, because man. because he's so good at it um, and I got to see him trying problems that you know I have dialed and he's learning them in real time mm-hmm so it was cool to see the way he turned that dial. And then there was a move. I was trying one of my Peter Boxamichi problems, which which I know is a box that's really hard for me. And and it was essentially a getting stuck moment, but it was rather than getting stuck in a position, I was stuck between should I be trying to hold this position statically or should I be moving with momentum here? Oh, I don't yeah. Quite 
I don't quite understand this box and I'm doing this weird combo of the two and getting stuck in between these two styles. And, and Roland called it out. He's like, you need to make a fucking decision there. He's really good about that. Whether you're trying to hold that position or whether you're moving through that position. Yeah. And I was like, yep, you're right, I do. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool to watch other people and see what tools they they use, you know, um, and what comes up first for them. Like for some people, man, they're they just crank the uh, try hard dial up to about a fifteen and snap the knob off the <laughs> dash. Right. I'm like, yep, we're doing it. Like, you know, beta technique, all that be damned. And it can really get a lot of work done, like confidence and try hard. Um, but yeah, I think it's cool that climbing very often offers the ability to turn your dials in a configuration that works for you. Yes. You know, and someone else may have a different configuration of how their dials are set to make that move work for them. Um, I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and to kind of go back to quoting Josh Waitskin, um, he, one of the biggest themes in the art of learning is this idea of self-expression. Like this idea of whatever you do, it should be an expression of yourself. And I just so strongly believe in that. Like this idea of, you know, I think we should all be building out a full dashboard of, you know, I want to have as much range on all of the dials as I can, but no matter what I work on, I'm going to have my own unique take on a situation and yeah, trying to express it in my own way. And I think that's really cool. Like, and I find that the more I try and embrace that idea, the more, the better I do and the more I enjoy it too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't have to stick to the beta we saw in the beta videos. Um, you know, we, we have our own unique set of, of skills that we can apply to every boulder root move sequence. And, and we should leverage that as much as possible. And that's totally okay to do. Yeah. You know, it's Daniel Woods isn't going to try and climb like a Jimmy Webb and Fred Nicole's not going to climb like a Dave Graham. But uh, all four of those people are pretty good, you know? <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah. Dave Graham can still, like, lock down moves like Fred Nicole. Like, maybe not the exact same way, but, you know, that toolkit's pretty well expanded. Um, like, finding these different themes of tension, of position, of pace, of, um, you know, emotionally, you could like refer to it as like arousal. That's what Dan John likes to say. Like, you know, where mm -hmm. am I at? Am I staying calm? Am I trying to like, you know, do the hardest move of my life? Um, all these different yeah. things, like really play with the full spectrum of them. Like see what happens if you try and climb, like you're attempting to lift a car off the ground. Yep. And what, what happens if you find like a middle point between that and like climbing like you're asleep, um, you know? really play around with it and you'll find these cool different zones that are apply applicable to all different situations. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of brings me to a, a point that can move us along to another one of the big topics of his, which is 
reps hidden in plain sight. But one of the things, you know, in these big themes, you know, I told you that I've got this theme that's all based around emotion that I've been trying to really wrap my head around. And one of the things I noticed in my own climbing that was that was not necessarily missing, I was acknowledging that it existed and I was learning to get past it was this this moment of commitment or anxiety or whatever for a specific move. And, you know, I've used the banana on the cover of the book as the symbol of commitment because you get this, if you've got a really ripe black banana you're trying to snap in half, there's this moment of, oh God, you know, it's not going to work, but you still have to move through it and commit. And I was finding myself dropping off of a lot of boulders and then saying, I was just scared. I was scared of that move. Mm-hmm. And and I could be honest about it, but it still wasn't helping me get through it quickly. You know, I could get through it in four or five attempts by acknowledging it and then going up there with that intention. But I started wondering, how can I practice this same sort of anxiety, the same sort of commitment issue that I'm having in the gym? And... That's one of the reasons that Will sent me these really sharp little crimps um, because I know I have a hard time making big dynamic moves to little sharp holds Mm -hmm. um, so that I can practice that. And it's the reason I designed our, you know, the footholds, the resistors, diodes, and inductors the way that I did because I was asking myself, what about the way I place my feet or the way I have to stand on footholds makes me nervous? What, mm. what scares me? And how can I make a foothold that forces me to have that feeling? And pretty much everybody that I've climbed on these footholds with says the same thing. Like that gives me the same sort of anxiety that standing on a little slippery smear or a little polished edge does outside. Yeah. And that's so huge. We have, yeah, we have the tools. You know, the tools exist. The question is, can you recognize that you're missing this, this dial on your dashboard or mm-hmm. that it's a very small dial? And then can you put the tools into place to help you expand the range on that specific dial? Yeah. You know, and that's, um, what was the phrase you used? Wasn't uh, hidden, was it hidden reps or he- reps hidden reps, in plain sight? Reps hidden in plain sight, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think those slippery little footholds are a great example because depending on where you climb, most people aren't going to get to get much traffic out of on those kind of holds. Right. You know, it's only going to be when you're outside, God forbid, on a rope. and uh, (laughs) Yeah, above a bolt. Yeah. But man, if you can already have hundreds of reps in and you know like, oh, I just stopped this foothold and I move forward – that's enormous. And yeah. it's, you know, things like that aren't hard to do. Like, you know, you can easily litter that on like the 20 degree wall or whatever. You can do your warm ups, but your entire warm up circuit, but just using those little slippery feet instead of the normal feet, boom. Like, that's an easy way to get an extra like 50 reps every day. Yeah. And I know like you have one of your clients that climbs in the machine shop here and, and she's been, in our house and climbing in the gym since this whole thing started. So she's one of the few people that we're having regular interactions with still. Mm -hmm. And, 
and her first few sessions in the machine shop using the little feet because I just littered the wall with our inductors and mm-hmm. she's trying to use the inductors on the warm-ups and it makes them considerably more difficult and her first sessions were were really hard. Oh, I heard she, about it. She was falling <laughs> off of boulders. Oh yeah, she would ask me and I'd be like, you need to talk to Nate. Oh man, And good, good. But now I see her in there and she's just stomping these little feet and it's it doesn't even look like it's an issue for her anymore. So it wasn't they were that much physically harder. It's that emotionally something was happening that caused her effort level to drop below what was required for that move. And yeah. that's what made it hard. You know, she didn't get massively physically stronger over the course of a couple of weeks. You know, you're a good coach, but you're not that good. Mm-hmm. And But she did dial in that emotional component that's allowing her to just stomp those little feet without worrying about slipping off and bashing her knee or her shin on a nearby hold. Yeah. You know, with bad footholds, like that's, that's very much a thing. Like there is, you know, I could argue that there's a coordination component of just applying more force to your feet. Totally. But, uh, you know, if someone tried to argue that with me, if I'm 15 feet off the ground, bouldering in Yosemite, trying to step on a little glass edge. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna tell them that's not the case right now. Right, like, right. You yeah. feel like you're doing everything you can. Yeah, as a, I like that as an example. Yeah, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a cool process to watch and to, you know, think about how it applies to these bigger thematic ideas and to these reps hidden in plain sight. And, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I think climbing has done a really good job of giving people the ability to get these reps in. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of I sort of outlined this hierarchy of how it's gone over the years to get these reps in. Was hangdogging we, on it? <clears throat> hangdogging is not, but it. And I was looking more in like the like facilities we have. Okay. Yeah. But we could, you're right, we could go into, you know, things like hangdogging and trying moves over and over. And if we just look at the big, like, facility options, it it all started with outdoor climbing, like big objectives, outdoor climbing. Yep. You know, single single pitches came as a way to practice for those bigger objectives. Mm-hmm. And then boulders came as a way to practice for those single pitches. Yeah. And then, And then this part is strange to me that we went – Climbing gyms, like then we built climbing gyms, but they were route-based. Yes. And, I, and I'm not sure why we didn't jump straight to bouldering gyms. It makes the most Even, sense. Yeah. But we, you know, we went to Roots, then we went to boulder gyms, then like home walls, simulator type things or where it dials down even further mm-hmm. that you get to get in as many reps of whatever kind of climbing you want to get in. If you feel like you need to get better at doing crosses at not getting stuck in the middle, if you've got a decent sized home wall, you can make up a hundred different cross moves and see what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what moves are you getting stuck on over and over. Yeah. You know, all of those things you can play around with ad nauseum. What do you think is the ultimate piece of equipment for really getting in high quality reps? I would have to say just off the cuff that a well-set 
spray wall. Okay. Yeah. Is better than the mirrored board. Um, I mean, obviously you could have a, a giant mirrored spray wall and that would be even better. That was going to actually be my answer was a giant <laughs> well-set mirrored <clears throat> spray ward. Yeah. And I've seen one. There used to be one. Um, I never saw it in person, but I remember Natasha Barnes had a photo of it. I was going to say, yeah. On her Facebook or Instagram like five years ago. The thing was a beast. It was like 18 feet wide wall. or something. Yeah, it was big. And I think that would be the ultimate tool to have. Yes. So ultimate, massive, adjustable, uh, yeah. mirrored, well-set spray wall. But to do that, we need things like the Pusher font series to be made in a mirror. Oh, yes. Like I need a mirrored boss to put but, but, on my giant spray wall. I don't know if that's necessary. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think I was thinking about the same idea, kind of how everything's progressed as far as being able to get quality reps in. And I think a short, like a short bouldering wall, um, short as in, you know, I look at some of these like 16 foot walls nowadays, like that's not a good way to get good, like quality reps in. Right. Um, something that you can reach up and grab two thirds of the holds from the ground. Like to me, that is a good height. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, something along those lines is, man, it just adds up. You can get so many good reps bouldering <clears throat> on something like that. Yeah, I agree. The people who sort of disparage the smaller walls or feel like they're lacking because they've got a smaller wall really just need to up their imagination. You know, there's a, a lot you can do with a pretty tiny little wall. Yeah. I think it's really rad. You can try really hard when you have no fear of falling. Like, and there's no better way to have no fear of falling than to have like a two-piece of plywood home home wall. Yeah, and you know, just to just to piggyback off of that, that's something I've been exploring in the gym a little bit because we do have a you know, not a super tall spray wall, but at the top, it does get a little heady because there's not a ton of room to fall backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and it is fairly high in there. Yeah. And, the, and there are some obstacles, like it gets a little tight when you're up high in some of the spots on the wall. Mm -hmm. And so I've been exploring doing moves that feel really insecure up there because of my commitment issue with moves. Yeah. You know, I've been using slippery Gastones that I really have to push into at the top of the wall, knowing I could fall off of here and it could hurt really bad. <laughs> it, it could go poorly, but I'm finding that a lot of these moves that I bail off of the first two or three times really aren't that hard. They're just me saying, this is scary. I'm going to drop my effort level accordingly. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so I do think there is some value in having that. Maybe you just set up a bed of nails b between or below your small woody and don't fall. Yeah, or go chase low ball <laughs> problems. You know, you can do that too. Are there other places where you feel like in climbing there are reps hidden in plain sight that people aren't, that most people are not taking advantage of? Hmm. 
I think there's a lot we've learned to take advantage of. I haven't thought too hard on what the ones are that we aren't taking advantage of. Um, I've been so deep in the, like, how can I make people scared to stand on these feet <laughs> world? Um, let me think on that. How about you? Are there other ones you've recognized? Yeah. You know, there's one that really jumps out to me. Um, and I played with this some years ago. And the only reason I stopped is just because it, it turns into a lot of hard work. But I had this concept that I played with that I still believe in. But it's the idea of if a move is hard for you, it means like you fall on it. I mean, generally speaking, you know, if, I, if you go out and you try a V8 and you do eight of, the, eight of the 10 moves first try, but two of the moves you fall on, it stands to reason that those two moves are challenging for you. Like in some way, it could be that you didn't read them correctly. So they were challenging for you route reading wise or like your literacy of movement. It could be that it was a bad hold, it was powerful, whatever. Huge spectrum, but those are the two hard moves for you. So, you know, for the V8 grade, using you as an example, that's something you can do typically in like 10, maybe 15 minutes. And what a lot of people would approach, the way a lot of people would approach a boulder problem of that level for them is, you know, they'd go up, try it, fall on those two moves, maybe do each move once, figure out how to do the top, and then pull, rest a while, try and do it from the bottom. And then maybe they do it and they call it a day. And they move on to the next thing. And yep. this is what you see in the gym all the time. Like people will <laughs> fall on a move, figure it out, do it. And if they don't do it in a few tries, they'll walk away. Now to me, the way I look at this is of those 10 moves, which are the ones that you're going to learn the most from? Like the two moves that you fell on. So rather than climbing the whole boulder and calling it good, like there was a while where if I felt fell on any move for any reason in the gym, I had to complete it successfully five times before I could move on to even another move. And like, so all of this was done for me at around 80%. So I wasn't trying like limit bouldering at this time. This was things that for me, I think it was up to about like V9 or 10. So moves that like typically I was going to do in a handful of tries. So some moves might take me five tries to do, but then I couldn't move on until I had done them five times. Yeah, I like that. And and I would take it maybe even a step further. And And you know this as well, that... Like one of my favorite things to do is to come up with alternate beta for the yeah. cruxes of climbs, especially really popular climbs that everybody does one way. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, you watch a group of people working on it of all different sizes and types and strengths and weaknesses, and everybody's trying the same beta because that's the beta. Yeah. Like now, can I do that crux move six different ways? Mm -hmm. that fit different types of people, different strengths, weaknesses, sizes, styles, whatever. That's one of my absolute favorite things to do. And, you know, it may work better outdoors than it does indoors just because there are holds available or sections of the rock available that people aren't using. Yeah. Um, but it works indoors as well. Mm -hmm. No, so, and I think that that's another cool way to go about it as far as really picking apart these sequences and trying to figure out what makes them tick. Um, but yeah, to me, this is, 
it feels like a pretty obvious thing. Like it's this whole idea of quantity over or quality over quantity. Like, you know, you can come into a bouldering gym, climb 40 new boulders in a day. But if every time, if every time you did a boulder, you did it first or second try, you probably weren't climbing it that well. Like the difference, the difference between doing a boulder your first time versus your fifth time, man, it feels like a different problem. And people recognize this when they go to repeat climbs. They'll be like, oh, like, man, I, that used to be a really heinous barn door. I had to kick my leg in really hard, and now I just stick the move, and it feels casual. Yep. Like, when it gets to feeling casual, that's when you want to be repeating it because you want to teach your body this is how we move. We move in a way that these hard moves feel easy. There's this idea of, oh, it feels easy, so it's not a good workout anymore, so I'm probably not getting stronger from it. Sure. But, and that's kind of like almost like a weightlifter mentality of like, you know, it's got to be effort for me to effortful for me to get better. But, you know, it's no different than playing music or any other skill. Like you want to do th- something well and then you get the reps in. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that helps it bleed into my like emotional thematic idea in that confidence is one of the things I had listed in there. You know, if you can Mm -hmm. learn to move confidently, you're going to connect with more moves uh, instead of moving timidly. And we all have, or the majority of us, I guess I should say, have a level at which we move confidently. And then that gradually becomes more and more timid at some level. You know, if I'm on a V6, I'm going to move way more confidently than I do on my first try on a V11. Totally. Um, So learning to apply that confidence more and more and more is really important. And you can repeat problems. You know, there are problems in the machine shop now that I know are V10, but I move really confidently on those. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got them dialed. I can do them at will. And that resulted in going outside and moving that same way at that same grade because I'm like, oh, well, Jimmy's webbed feet is this hard and I crush that. So, you know, I'm going to come out here and climb with that same crush mentality and move in that same confident way. No, absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be harder boulders make you climb less confident. Like there are plenty of times where easier boulders like or routes you might feel even less confident on for, for certain sure. ranges. Um, and everyone always has like a certain range. Like I feel like depending on how like your experience and what your level is. Um, like there was a while where, man, I never wanted to get on V4s. Cause it felt to me like, oh, I should be strong enough. I think I was climbing, like breaking into V7. Right, right, right. I was like, I should be strong enough that I should just do this. But a lot of them were still kind of hard. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was kind of timid around them a lot of times. Oh, and it's like, I I remember watching the video of Adam Andro when he went to Yosemite and it shows him flashing the midnight lightning. And he talked about it both before and after doing it. And he was like, I'm really nervous. Like, I really don't want to blow this. And he climbed looking like he was kind of nervous. Yeah. And I was just like, man, like, you know, this is him on like a V8. But yeah. to him... That, it, you, that you flashed. Yes. I, you know, it's worth 
stating, I don't think I was nearly as nervous. <laughs> but, and that's the thing is like, I wasn't nervous at all. Cause it's like, to me, that was hard. Like it wasn't a, I was like, okay, this is possible, but it's still hard. I don't have room to be nervous. All I can be is right. confident and try hard. But for him, it was so far below his level. He had yeah. all this extra, you know, time to think and process and be like, oh, that foot feels slippery and things like that. Where me, I'm like, I had to just focus at such a high level that I was like, stop the foot, jump to the hold, crush everything. Yeah, and you can, if you keep a tick list, you can look at it and very often see what that range is for you. You know, for me, it's V9. Like, I yeah. feel like I could put the same amount of work into a V9 as I could V11. Oh, yeah. So I would rather get that V11. Put, put the work into V11 than be flailing on a V9. And, you know, like you, you just said, you, had, you were okay with falling on Midnight Lightning. You knew it was a possibility. It was going to be a hard flash attempt for you. So you were able to look past this idea of this fear of failure and just say, all right, I'm going to give it what I've got. And in Adam Onder's case, it was, I can't fucking fail on a V8. Yeah. Like, like what? what's that say about me if I fail on V8? Yeah. When he was down climbing, he was like, oh, wouldn't that have been embarrassing if I fell? Right. Right. <laughs> like, you know. And so it's important that to circle this all back around, you know, find those things that are, oh, like, man, that uh, V4 slab over there, like, there are a lot of people on it. Like, I should go get on it right now because I'm nervous about that. You know, work through those things. So not only just get better at trying hard at the highest level, but get good at trying hard at things that are in that uh, hump grade. Yeah, and I think, you know, that sort of leads right into the idea I came up with of, you know, the rep that's hidden in plain sight that people aren't taking advantage of. And you brought up earlier that nobody, like the the hardcore climbers, don't want to do the comp boulders or the, the funky slabs, mm -hmm. you know. And that's something I've tried really hard to embrace are these moves that, for me, feel either impractical, like Josh Waitzkin talks about, you know, it just doesn't feel useful. I'm, I'm never going to encounter that in what I do. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's more of a, I don't want to look bad in front of all these people. Like, I'm going to look like I don't know how to fucking rock climb if I try this comp slab. Totally. You know? You know so em embracing that and getting better at being, you know, existing inside that emotion, inside that feeling of, that was embarrassing, you know? If you can live inside that emotion, then you just get better at not letting it affect your performance. Yeah. You know, and this is something that, man, a ton of people feel like, you know, it. so I've talked with plenty of coaches. Like, I feel that, this idea of, oh, I'm a coach. I, you know, I assume people, like, we all make these assumptions. I'm like, well, I shouldn't be falling because I'm a coach. I shouldn't be, you know, flailing on this and all these things. It's like, I've talked to people who are gym staff who feel the same way. They're like, well, I work at a climbing gym. I shouldn't be like yep. falling on that level. I talk to setters. I talk to, you know, anyone, people who are like, oh, well, I climb this hard outside. And so I get nervous indoors because I don't climb nearly as hard inside. You know, all right. these things. And ironically, I feel like, I bring this up to anyone and four out of five people 
will say the exact same thing, that they feel like they shouldn't be the person falling on these types of climbs. And yeah, so it's, you know, it's really important to address that. And honestly, just not stress out about it because, you know, if you're trying hard, you're falling. Like if you're trying to get better, you sure as shit better be falling. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting being, you know, the owner at the machine shop and having some problems in there totally dialed that, that might be above my normal, like, you know, regular send pay grade. Um, when people come in who, who can climb that grade regularly and I'm like, I'm like, Ooh, interesting. You know, I get to, I get to burn some people off here. Uh-huh. You know, say like like Roland or J Star, for example. Oh yeah. You know, neither of them flashed Jimmy's webbed feet. Boom. I have it dialed, and yeah. and I joke and I joke about it to them. Like, all right, you know, now I get to show you some problems that you're gonna fall on that I'm not. Oh man, you should have played it up and like, oh hold on, <laughs> let me go get the binder. I I can't remember how this one goes. Uh, Jimmy's webbed feet, weird. Huh? Okay, I don't know what I was thinking when I named that one. And then you just but, flash it in their face. Yeah. But the best climbers don't hesitate. They're like, mm-hmm. cool, make, make me fall. You know? Yeah, man. Make me look stupid for a minute. It's only going to take me a few minutes to figure it out, but, but give it to me. Yeah. You know? And they really embrace it. They embrace that opportunity to, to learn something. To, you know, Roland did Jimmy's webbed feet in a few tries, but he lingered on one move for a minute, the, the big jump cross move. Yeah. He lingered on because he was like, oh, that's a weird momentum. You know, do you, mm-hmm. do you jump off your right foot or your left foot? And, you know, where are you aiming? What are you doing? And here's this person who's distinctly better than I am at climbing with momentum, who's encountered a move that feels a little foreign to him. He's like, oh, I get to learn something here. I'm going to ask this person who's not definitely not as good at this skill as I am because I recognize, oh, he's got something to teach me in this moment. Yeah. You know? And that's an important thing to be able to recognize. Totally. And it, it, that's super cool too because, I mean, honestly, Roland's strong enough. If he needed to, he probably could have campused that move after some work. For sure. To be able to recognize, oh, like this is this is an opportunity to learn. Like... I don't fully understand this. Like he could have slopped his way through it, but to right, pause and right. say like, Hey, how did you do this? What am I missing? Like, what can, what can I be doing? How can I learn from this? That's fucking cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was very uh, cool. Uh, you know, so I've been looking at uh videos of tiny little home, home walls. Cause uh, a lot of my clients <laughs> yeah. are, uh, tis the season, but a lot of my clients have been talking about building up their own little walls and I came across the video of uh, Ned Feely, Ned the Baker. Yep. And his tiny little home board, which is about as tall as he is. Yeah. And this video was shot right after he had flashed V14 down in South Africa. And he said something that I thought was just really cool. Um, he was talking about all the boulders on his wall. And he said that you know, whenever he would bring friends in or bring other climbers in, they would just smash his problems. And they were like, man, you know, these aren't that hard. And he was like, you know, and in one way it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to see 
everyone else just do so well. He's like, but at the same time, he's like, that means I'm nailing the mark. Like, cause these are really hard for me. So that means that these are all my, like I am nailing my weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, man, that's a really, really cool way to look at it. Like, yeah. Like if these are really hard for you, but other strong climbers are good at them. Perfect. That means you've found the thing. Like, and I yep. thought, yeah, I just thought that was a really cool way to view that. Yeah, that's cool. I've seen a lot of people recently asking about, you know, how do I set hard projects for myself? Uh, people just have a hard time connecting with that. And, mm-hmm. and I think maybe a lot of those people who think, oh, I can either set things that I can do or things that are impossible for me, maybe they're better at setting really hard projects for themselves than they think they are. Um, you know, maybe those impossible things aren't as impossible and you just need to buckle down, believe, and put some work in. Yeah, sometimes you got to put the wrench away. Like, yeah. it. You know, this is something that setters, I was a route setter for six years, and I have not had to train Gaston's in the last decade, and they are still unquestionably my strongest aspect mm-hmm. because everything I set was a hard Gaston move. And anytime a move would feel a little challenging or weird, I'd be, I could tweak it. And I fell for that trap for so long. I'd be yep. like, oh, well, this is this feels more natural this way and it's smoother. It's, it's better climbing. I'm putting on a better product. But everything I set was always in my comfort zone. And so by climbing on my own problems, like I was just reinforcing comfortable movement. Yep, and totally. So, yeah, like in hindsight, I mean, and this is different when you're setting for a gym, but if I was setting for like just myself, it would be put the holds up. If anything, turn them in a way that feels a little more fucked up than what I've got initially and then hide the wrench for a week. Yep. Yeah, I think that's really good advice and timely advice. I think a lot of people are struggling with that right now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it, but this episode was released four years ago. And I've spent a lot of that time since considering the global themes of movement and experimenting with how we can teach via those instead of individual techniques. Like I mentioned before, if you're interested in continuing to dive deeper into how climbers learn to move the way we do, then definitely subscribe to The Current so that you can connect the dots with us. We've got more great episodes on movement coming over the next couple of months as well. If you're a coach, you might enjoy my Coaching for Mastery course, which digs into both the research and my experience and how we can better help climbers learn. Links to both of those things are right there in your show notes. And while you're there, you'll find all the things we mentioned in this episode, as well as all of the ways you can go deeper into the topic. Related podcast episodes and articles, our Patreon, where we're releasing several bonus episodes every month, and of course, The Current, where we'll always be connecting dots so that together we can learn, grow, and excel. This time, 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 this